We have two readings this morning, both of which will be on the screen. Hear these words from the book that we love. The first reading comes from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, on page 807 of the Pew Bibles. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 38, verse 6, found on page 32 of the Pew Bibles. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 38 today, Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the table on your way out at the info table. Please grab one of those. It's, It's just a great way for you to grow closer to the Lord, but also to make sure that I'm not making things up. So that's always good and important too. So let me ask you, what's the most embarrassing story your family has? Now that's rhetorical. Think about it. I don't want you shouting out your most embarrassing stories. But maybe it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's still embarrassing. Like, is there a story that everyone likes to reference at Thanksgiving where everyone laughs except the person involved? Do you guys have those kind of family stories, right? Nobody wants to talk about that. It's a little inside joke about maybe something you did as a kid that everyone else thinks is funny, but you would rather not talk about. Are there any stories like that? Anybody have stories in their family like that? Yeah, definitely mine and two other of you. Or maybe the story is bad. Maybe your family has a story no one dares to bring up. Or maybe you're afraid that story is going to be brought to light. Are there stories in your family history that wreck your family line with shame? Are there stories that your family carries that cause you real pain? Are there things that you, that have been done to you or members of your family that you wish you could erase? What would it be like to be related to the parents of John Benet Ramsey? What would that be like? That'd be really embarrassing. Foolish shame. Or what if you shared the last name Nixon after Watergate? There'd be a lot of shame there, a lot of embarrassment. Even if you're not related to him, you'd probably be like, well, I'm not one of those Nixons. Or maybe worse, what would it be like to have the last name Hitler after World War II? Or even now, for that matter. Like, it's a, even now, that'd be really embarrassing. And you'd rather not bring it up. You probably would change your name. We start a new series called The Mothers of Jesus Today with some of the most embarrassing stories any family could ever have. And none of them are funny. And all of them are true. And unlike your own embarrassing family stories, which will probably die out in a generation or two, These stories have followed Jesus for 2,000 years, and God, for whatever reason, wants them to. 
Ancient genealogies, like we just heard read, typically only included the names of men. Yet, when we read Matthew 1, five women are mentioned. Tamar, who we'll talk about today, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, who's just referred to as the wife of Uriah, and Mary. Five women. And the stories around these women include things like murder, deception, scandal, incest, sexual assault, and more. And it was into this family with these stories that Jesus, the Son of God, is born. And we'll be in this series through Christmas Eve. We'll conclude it on Christmas Eve, which will be the same time, same place, on December 24th, which is Sunday this year. And in this series, what I hope we'll grab a hold of is that God chooses to use nobodies and mess-ups to bring glory to his name. That God intentionally chooses nobodies. That God intentionally chooses mess-ups. So the verse we'll keep coming back to is this verse in 1 Corinthians 1, these verses 27 through 31. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Listen, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, came to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I hope that in this series, you'll be given reason to boast in the Lord. I hope in this series, you will be able to boast in the Lord who only uses nobodies and mess-ups because nobodies and mess-ups are all that there are. God chooses to use those people because that's all that there are to be used. And Tamar's story, which we'll look at today, is a story full of incest, deception, and prostitution. Stories that none of us would probably tell at Thanksgiving. We wouldn't want to talk about them. I once had, uh, back in the day, I went to Christian, Christian high school, and I had a Bible teacher in 11th grade named Mr. Thompson. And I don't know, like, look, me, look, you think I'm bad now. You should have seen, like, 11th grade me, which is, like, really f- frustrating and constantly joking around and being sarcastic. And so Mr. Thompson wanted to teach me a lesson. And we were in the book of Genesis, and he was like, hey, tomorrow, Evan, you're going to teach on Genesis 38. I was like, all right, yeah, whatever. I thought he wasn't serious. The next day, he calls me up. He says, hey, Evan, come up. You're going to teach Genesis 38. And so he was serious, and I was very unprepared that day, but I am prepared today. So this one's for you, Mr. Thompson. (laughs) The main theme I want for us in this sermon today is that God weaves our stories. 
He weaves our stories of sin and suffering into stories of his grace. That's it. That's all I want us to realize today. God takes our sin, our suffering, and he weaves those into stories of his grace. And a lot of times that suffering, is what most we want to talk about today, is suffering that's been brought about by our own doing and the shame that's associated with that. So we're talking about sinners in the stories of God's grace. We're going to talk about sufferers in the stories of God's grace. And then we're going to talk about saints in the stories of God's grace. All right? So let's look at sinners in the story of God's grace. Let's turn to Genesis 38, which I think Jim says on page 32 in the Pew Bibles. And look at verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. God weaves our stories of sin into a beautiful tapestry of his grace. Now, you might not know what a tapestry is. A tapestry is a heavy cloth that has designs or pictures woven into it, and it's used especially as a wall hanging. Now, growing up, my mom hung up this quilt on the wall. I don't know why she did that. Anybody else's mom do that? Was that just my mom? Okay, that was just my mom. She hung up this quilt on the wall. We're not talking about those. We're talking about real, legit art. In the late medieval Europe, tapestries were the most magnificent and expensive ways of doing art. Okay, the most magnificent and expensive ways they would do art in the late medieval period was tapestries, or at least that's what Wikipedia told me. So they often used them to tell stories, such as um, the bio, sorry, Bayou tapestry. I think we have a picture of that here. All right, this tapestry is 70 meters long. That's 76 and a half yards for us Americans, okay? And it tells the legendary tale of, Norman, of the Norman conquest of England when William the Conqueror invaded and defeated King Harold Godwinson. Everybody's favorite story, right? So this is what this whole thing did. It, it, it laid that out. It's just this whole story. It's 70 meters, 76 and a half yards long telling this story. And what we see here in Genesis 38, we see an example of one of the most embarrassing stories any family could ever have that God will take and he'll weave into this beautiful piece of art. Genesis 38 is sandwiched between two stories about Joseph. So you may, you may have a church background, you may know who Joseph is. Joseph is one of the, bro, one of the brothers, one of the sons of Jacob. And in Genesis 37... Joseph is sold into slavery with his brothers, by his brothers, all right? His brothers sell him into slavery. So you thought your family was messed up. No one has sold you into slavery as far as I know. And what they did is they concoct this plan to get rid of, uh, rid of him. And in fairness to them, slavery was a step down from murder. So in some sense, maybe we need to be a little bit fair. They kind of like decided, hey, maybe we shouldn't murder our brother. Let's just sell him to slavery. I don't know if that's much better, but that's what they decided to do. And you know whose recommendation is that they send him into slavery? Judas, who we hear about in Genesis 38. So they sell him into slavery, and then what they do is they decide they're going to deceive their father, Jacob, who, by the way, has his own history of deception, just like his father and his father before him were people of deception. And they, tried, they tricked Jacob into thinking Joseph was killed by a wild animal. So we have that backdrop to Genesis 38, where the story now turns to Judah. 
Judah, who's already off to a rough start in Genesis, becomes friends with this man named Hira. And while they're hanging out, they, he sees this Canaanite woman who's never named by name. She's just called, you know, the daughter of Shua. And he marries this Canaanite woman, which God told the Israelites not to do. So there's like a lot of red flags about this story. So if you're an original reader, you're like, hold a second. This guy sold Joseph into slavery. It was his idea. And now he's marrying a Canaanite woman, which God says not to do. But they have three sons together. The first guy's name is Ur. The second son is Onan. And the last guy's name is Shelah. And we learn from verse 7, we learn from verse 7 that Ur is evil. So God killed Ur. All right? So now we're down one son. And it was common in those days when a man died without children, his wife was given to the next brother to attempt to have a child with her so his brother's line would continue on. But what we read from the, the narrative is that Onan has no interest in doing that. So what Onan does when they sleep together, Onan pulls out. That's the, the way I'm going to say it for younger years. He pulls out while they're sleeping together. And so God kills him for doing that. Now listen, that might seem really harsh, but we have to remember, if you have a church background, you'll recall that God promised that he make a great nation out of Abram's family, and nations require children. So when Abraham's great-great-grandson Onan pulls out, God sees this as a direct assault on his promises. It's disobedience by Onan, so God punishes him with death. Now Judah has one son left. So we look at verse 11 in Genesis 38. says this, Then, let me get there. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, right? So he's like, Tamar's like, okay, I guess Shelah is going to be given, I'm going to be given the Shelah now. But this is what Judah says. He says, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Shelah, at this point, isn't old enough to produce children. Back in the day, you would actually get married after you went through puberty. That was like, as soon as you were able to produce children, you got married. So he's not able to do that yet. So Judah asked Tamar to go back to her father's house until then. Now, this might, this might seem like Judah has good intentions. He's looking out for her, right? But as we read here, and as we just read, he doesn't care about Tamar. He doesn't care about giving her a child. Judah cares about Judah. That's all he cares about. And worse, for reading carefully, worse, he blames Tamar, not his son's wickedness, for their deaths. He's afraid if I give Shelah to Tamar, somehow she is going to be responsible for his death. In other words, Judah is masking selfish motives with selfless actions. Selfishness 
is selfishness, even if it doesn't look like it. And we do the same thing, don't we? What selfish motives might you be masking with selfless actions? What are you trying to pass off as that's really selfishness? You're trying to pass off as altruism. Where do I claim that I live for God and for others when I'm really just trying to bring attention to myself? Where are we nice to someone's face, but we really can't stand their guts? Where do we act like our intentions are pure when they're not? God doesn't just look at our actions, but at the heart behind them. Psalm 42.21 tells us that God knows the secrets of our hearts. Proverbs 21.2 says that God weighs up the heart. Proverbs 22, uh, 21.2, kind of, it says like God actually, like man has a way that's right in his eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And because our hearts are selfish, because we like to take our selfish hearts and then we try to mask them with these selfish actions that on the, their face look selfless, we need to have the courage to pray like David in Psalm 139, where he prays this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. Listen, I want to read that again because... Think about praying this to God. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. Do you see the courage you need to have to say that prayer? See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. We might be selfish, yet despite, despite the sin in our hearts, God continues to weave our story into a story of his grace, even when we, our hearts are sinful. Listen to David again. He says, lead me in the way of everlasting. Lead me in the everlasting way. God's not giving up on him. God hasn't found what's in his heart yet. He's inviting God in, knowing that God's still going to lead him. And so we have the sinners in stories of God's grace. Let's look at sufferers here. Verse, pick up verse 12. So Judah's wife dies. And then it says, When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, a Dolomite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her wi- widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So we saw God weaves sinners into a beautiful tapestry of his grace, but God also weaves sufferers into a beautiful tapestry of his grace. One of my favorite shows of all time is Arrested Development. Great first three seasons until Netflix ruined it. And so... There's a running joke in one of the episodes of Arrested Development of broken promises. 
So if you've seen the show, there's this one point where the son, who's the second oldest, Michael Bluth, he decides to sell the family cabin. And his brother Job, which is spelled G, it's his nickname, G-O-B, uh, we, never mind, I'm going to, that's, you can watch the series yourself. He complains that he never knew about the cabin because their, their father never took him because something always came up is kind of the joke. So Michael reveals that despite his father's promises, he never had been to the cabin either because his father would always make the excuse, something came up. So, and Job, he's all upset and he gets frustrated. He says, he basically says like, look, if I ever have a son, I will take him to the cabin. And Michael promises, he says, look, I know you've never been to the cabin, Job. I'll take you to the cabin. But like his father, Michael breaks his promise to Job because something came up which is really because he sees his son, George Michael, and he wants to take him to the cabin instead. So he lies to Job, breaks his promise to Job. And then he promises to take his son, George Michael, to the cabin. And this all kind of makes sense when you're like, you know the show, how it kind of moves back and forth like this. He t- then he decides he's not going to take his son to the cabin, breaks promise to his son because something came up. And if you know the series, Job actually ends up finding out he has a son. His name is Steve Holt. No, no one? Did somebody say Steve Holt? Thank you. (laughs) And he fails to deliver on the promises to Steve Holt. Now, it's funny in that episode, it's funny in that show, like people breaking their promises. But in real life, broken promises really hurt and destroy. As As some of you, like, know way too well. Broken promises in marriage destroy marriage. Broken promises to, in your family destroy families. Broken promises at work destroy relationships at work, right? Promises that are broken really do hurt and destroy. Now, whether Judah broke his promise to, ta- to give Tamar to Shayla, whether he did that intentionally or unintentionally, whatever the reason we're not told, but he breaks his promise to her, causing more suffering on Tamar. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. Tamar decides that she's going to dress up like a prostitute to deceive Judah, her father-in-law, into sleeping with her and impregnating her. I do not recommend this as a way to resolve your family issues. Just need to make that clear. Don't cut this sermon and say, Pastor Evan said... So let's look at Genesis 38. Let's pick up in verse 15. Check this out. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And he said, And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, and I love like the dash there, right? Like he's so interested in sleeping with her that he cuts her off. Keep reading. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil, she put on the garments of 
her widowhood. So when Judah is with his friend Hira, he goes to then drop, the Hira goes to drop off the goat, right? The promised goat, as the story continues. And he's going to get, drop off the goat to the prostitute that he doesn't know is his daughter-in-law and get her stuff back. But Hira comes back to, to Judah and is like, I, we, I can't find her. So pick up in verse 22. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. Like, nobody knows the prostitute you're talking about. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So then about three months later, here's what happens. Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant, and they, the language is by immorality. And Judah is angry. He's extremely angry, and he wants to burn her alive. And so he says, bring her to me because we're going to burn her alive right now. And Tamar is on her way to him, and she sends word to Judah that the father of her child owns this signet, cord, and staff. And she says, hey, take a look and let me know if you can recognize those. And recognize whose those are. In verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I have not, did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again, which means he didn't sleep with her again. The point, as I want to make very clear, is not to justify Tamar and Judah's incest. That's not why the Bible tells us this story, or to justify prostitution. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Both of these are against God's law. God makes that very clear. But the point is to remind you and me that while su there is suffering that's unavoidable, like oppression or abandonment, and those kinds of suffering, like God promises that he'll be there with us, He'll walk us through those times of suffering, and he'll redeem those times of suffering by making us more like Christ. But listen to me. There's some other suffering that is avoidable. Some suffering we bring on ourselves. Judah brought this suffering, this shame on himself. Some of our suffering is a consequence of not listening to what God says. In other words, there's suffering that's a consequence of our own sinfulness. And because of that, we're burdened with shame. The shame that God's been trying to keep us from. He's trying to keep us from that all along. He says, stay away from these things. Do what I ask you to do, please, because I'm trying to save you from this shame. The question you might have is, like, how do we know the difference, right? How do I know the difference between unavoidable and avoidable suffering? Well, I told you there's two stories of Joseph, right? Genesis 39, Joseph flees sexual immorality with Potiphar's wife. Joseph obeyed God and was thrown into prison. That's unavoidable suffering. But in contrast, Judah disobeyed God and slept with his daughter-in-law and hypocritically 
wants to kill her for her sin. And then he has to eat crow, and he brings shame on his family. That is an example right there of avoidable suffering. Much of suffering is unavoidable. You can obey God, and suffering will still happen, but God promises in those times he'll be there with you. But then why burden ourselves with suffering and shame that we don't need to go through? Judah had plenty of chances to obey God beforehand. He had plenty of chances to take the exit ramp. Like the guy's grieving, and he goes looking for a prostitute. He's so interested in sleeping with somebody that even though he doesn't, he doesn't have what he might be able to exchange for her with her, he doesn't have the goat. He's like, I'll, I'll get you the goat. Don't worry. He interrupts her to tell her that. Judah had plenty of chances to take the off-ramp, to obey God beforehand, to avoid the shame that, came, that would come as a consequence of his sin. It reminds me of a story that I, uh, a youth pastor once told me, and I had this experience as well with like a young man who just was like wrecked with guilt over sleeping with his girlfriend. And what he said to the youth pastor I said, it just happened. I don't, I don't know what happened. I feel horrible, but it just happened. And the youth pastor goes, well, why don't you tell me what led up to that event? Why don't you tell me what led up to that? And the young man goes, well, you know, uh, I invited her to my home because my parents were out of town. Step one, bad idea. Young, young men, bad idea. Young ladies say, if your parents aren't home, I ain't coming. If he loves you, He'll wait till his parents get home. And we're watching, we were watching movies late into the night. And then we started making out till 1 a.m. And then we moved to my bedroom, and it just happened. Look, God doesn't give us commands in the Bible to reign on our parade, but he gives them to us as guardrails on the highway of life to keep us from the consequences of sin. What avoidable suffering might God be trying to spare you from? What avoidable suffering might God be trying to spare me from? What shame might be avoided if we just listen to him in the first place? And the problem that we often have is that we often turn to the same things that brought us shame to save us. For example, if I feel shame in my sexuality, I think I just need to be bolder with it. The problem is not that I have to listen to God. The problem is I just got to be bolder. I got to live it out louder. I got to live out my sexual identity outside the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. That's my problem. The same thing that brought me shame, I'm just going to double down on to save me. Or if I feel shame about how I mismanage my money, I think I just need a quick fix. Maybe I need to gamble. Maybe I need to do some more betting. Maybe I need to take on more or different kinds of debt rather than buckling down and using my money the way God tells me to use it. See, instead of turning back to the things that brought us shame in the first place, instead of turning those things to save us, we need to ask God to forgive us 
And here's a quick reminder. Satan always accuses you in those moments. When you have shame, Satan, what it always does is he accuses you of your shame and he tells you you're a terrible person and continues to pound you down with the shame. The spirit convicts. And his conviction wants to bring you to, to Jesus and bring you to God and bring you freedom. He doesn't beat you down with it. But we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to free us from the consequences of avoidable suffering and keep us from the temptation to fall into it in the future. And watch. Watch when you do that. Watch how God works and weaves your sin and your avoidable suffering into a story of his grace. But the story doesn't end here. It ends with saints in the story, uh, stories of God's grace. Look at verse 27. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And Tamar ends up having two boys. The first is Perez, and the other is Zerah. Oh, sorry, Zerah. Both are ancestors of Jesus. See, despite our sin, despite the avoidable suffering that we bring on ourselves, God chooses to make you a saint in his kingdom. Saints aren't the all-star team of Christians. Every Christian is a saint. Every Christian is a story of God's grace. Every Christian is a person who is once filled with sin and shame, who's been freed by the blood of Jesus simply by putting their faith in him. God chooses the lowly and despised. God chooses the sinful. God chooses the shame-filled and transforms them and brings them in Christ. Why? Because God is about God. God desires to bring himself glory through you, despite what you've been through, despite what happened to you. God only redeems sinful and shame-filled people because sinful and shame-filled people are all that there are. And look, Judah, for his credit, admits he messed up. He says, she's more righteous than I. He tried to hide his failure at first when he took his friend. To stop. He told his friend, hey, you know what? Stop looking for the prostitute because if we keep looking for her, people are going to start asking questions. But once his failure came to light, what did he do? He owned it. Man, how often do we, like, when our sin comes to light, we get defensive? Well, I didn't really mean that. Oh, no, 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 you misheard me. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I know I got angry at you, but you kind of deserved it, didn't you? Judah, for his credit, actually owns it. And only in Christ can we move from sinful and shame-filled people to, to saints. God took the story around Tamar and he weaved it into a story of his grace and made her a saint in his kingdom. And God does the same for all of us who put our faith in Christ. 
Because of Christ, you can be assured that no matter how bad your sin is, how avoidable your suffering may be, God doesn't turn away you from his kingdom, but he invites you into it despite your sin and avoidable suffering and shame. And if you have a church background, you might recall that God promises in Genesis 3, after the first human sin, Adam and Eve's sin, that Eve's offspring will eventually crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And as you read Genesis, you might be tempted, all of us might be tempted to think that, see, Joseph's line, Joseph's line is going to be the line that will bring about the snake crusher, the serpent crusher. That's, that's the line, right? But what's remarkable the event of Genesis 38 actually changes Judah's life. And as the book comes to a close, Jacob, the, his father, pronounces blessings on all of his sons. And Joseph receives a nice blessing. But Judah, to Judah, Jacob prophesies that the king of Israel will always come from Judah's line. Do you see that? How God weaved that? Sin and suffering into the story of his grace. Now, all of a sudden, it's not just an it's not just simply an embarrassing story. It's become a story of his grace. In other words, it's Judah and Tamar's line that will produce Eve's promised offspring. Judah and Tamar's line will from their line will come the one who will crush the serpent, Satan's head. And sinners and sufferers who became saints in God's kingdom, that's what they have become. They will end up producing the great and mighty king, the savior of the world, Jesus, who crushed the head of the serpent in his death and resurrection. So now let me pause there for a second and just bring us to this. Now think of your own story. Think of your own sin. Think of your own avoidable suffering and shame. And my encouragement to you is look to the son of Tamar, Jesus, who came, who went to the cross, and died for your sin, and crushed the power of Satan in this world and in your life. Satan's power of sin can be broken and his weapon of shame can be destroyed. All we have to do is come before the throne of Jesus in prayer and lay my sin and my avoidable suffering and my shame at his feet. So whatever sin you're struggling with, any shame that you're carrying, Bring those to Jesus and experience the freedom that only he can provide so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray.